there, and welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, my man? What's up, Rob? What's up, everyone out there listening? I'm super excited to talk about this movie today. Uh, Sometimes we hit on a movie, and I just get, like, super antsy and excited to jump on this podcast and talk about it. But before we get into it, uh, just a quick reminder. um, If you have not already subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform you're on, Apple, Spotify, whatever, uh, jump over and just subscribe or follow, whatever it does. That's just helpful uh, for you, because whenever we put out a new episode, if you're into this and enjoying it, you can get the other one. Uh, So every time they come out, you'll just get the next one and it'll alert you. So go ahead and do that. If you want to give us a rating or a review, we always love to read those, too. Man, that was really convincing. Like, that was really well. Normally, when you do that segment, I'm so bored and I'm just like, well, Andrew, (laughs) stop talking. But today I was like, oh, man, you sound like, I don't know, like one of those funnel guys. Like, you're really good. Like, that was like a Zig Ziglar of subscribe. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. (laughs) Okay, so I'm giddy. And excited, as you can probably tell from my intro and everything else that's going on, because we're talking about a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And I guess to start off, Andrew, here's my opening question. Is this the best movie to come out since the pandemic? It might be. I I don't know any other movie that I've wanted to talk to people more about walking out of the theater than this one, which is a pretty strong mark of a fantastic movie. Well, here's the problem for me is I feel like I'm an everything everywhere all at once evangelist. So I'm just like shouting from the rooftops, go see it. Like I'm telling friends like, hey, you have to go see this movie. And here's the big problem is this movie is best gone into with no expectations. Like Mm. avoid the preview. In fact, if you haven't seen the movie and you're listening to this podcast, like you must really love us. But I'd recommend watch the movie first. It is rated R, I think. And so it's got some edgy stuff in there. So just, you know, probably don't watch it with your toddlers. But, you know, go watch this movie and then listen to it now. But like, I don't want to overly put expectations on it if you haven't seen it. I'm also trying to imagine anyone listening to this podcast having not seen this movie and how utterly confusing this podcast would be. (laughs) It would be confusing. Do you think everyone's heard about this movie? Like, is it out there or are only film nerds like talking about this? I actually feel like this might be a film nerd kind of movie. Like, I wasn't planning on seeing it. I watch a lot of trailers. Like, every time some new trailer pops up on YouTube, like, YouTube's got my algorithm where any trailer for any movie everywhere, even if it's, like, direct-to-video somewhere, like, it pops up as, like, hey, watch this trailer. So I watch a lot of movie trailers, and I didn't think this one was going to be, like, in the general population consciousness at all when I when I first saw it. I mean, the name isn't particularly catchy. Um, it seems pretty niche. But whoa, whoa, whoa. I think the title is actually amazing. I think the title is part of what like drew me in. I think it's just like, really it's so, yeah, it's so like ambitious and bombastic. And maybe I'm just a sucker for that. But I'm like everything yeah. everywhere all at once. Like I would so much rather it be that than like a movie called Charlie or a movie called, you know, just like, <laughs> you know, like David's Journey. I'm like boring, <laughs> but like everything everywhere all at once. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. It sounds amazing. Put me in. I think like. After having seen this movie, it is the perfect title. Uh, but there's something ab- about it that I, I I don't know. It's it's like a full sentence. And I mean, there's another movie coming out here in a couple days, or maybe it already came out. A Nick Cage movie called the uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Yes, the Unbearable um, Weight of Massive Talent. That's right. Which is like another full sentence of a title, which is already out, and I love that movie too. 
Any, any rate, all things aside about the title, I went in with no expectations. I wasn't even going to see this movie, and a buddy of mine was like, hey, do you want to go see this movie with me? And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing anything else tonight. I want to hang out with my friend. May as well go see this movie. That's how I walked into the theater. It was like, sure, I guess. That was my expectations. And it was all balloons and confetti from there. So for me, like, the only thing I really knew was I'd seen the Daniels, who are two directors, like, who did this movie, like, but they're just called the Daniels, uh, other movie called Swiss Army Man, which is a bananas movie. I'll probably talk about that at the end of this podcast. And what else do you recommend? But I'd seen this, that movie and I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, pay attention to these filmmakers. And then I saw this was coming out. But the thing that actually, like, drove me to see this movie was K. He Kwan. You know who that is? <laughs> um, if you had just said the name, I would have told you no. But having seen this movie and, you know, knowing his uh, 80s filmography, I definitely know who this is. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s. And so 80s movies matter a lot to as all of us. I feel like if you're listening to a movie podcast, you're probably in some form like shaped by 80s films. And those films <laughs> include classics like The Goonies, which is a movie that I adore uh do you how do you feel about the goonies by the way do you want to do that on a podcast one day or is it are you like millennial it's overrated it's garbage <laughs> hot take machine yeah i am a little bit of a millennial when it comes to 80s movies of i don't have quite the same like sweet spot like nostalgia for them like i was born in 87 so like i sort of missed the 80s train uh i'm more of like an early 90s movie nostalgic guy like a jurassic park or t2 terminator like that kind of stuff so i say goonies and you want to watch like matilda or something like that <laughs> i'm like yeah, hey let's, yeah. let's watch goonies and you're like no let's watch like fuller house you know like <laughs> full fuller house yeah that's my vibe that's false that is not my vibe at all um any, any, anyway but like I think Goonies is where Sean Astin, like, got his card punched for I am the inspirational speaker at the midpoint of the movie character. He's the goat, dude. That's why you hire him to be in a movie is to show up in the middle and give the it's our time down here speech. Yeah, it's our time. It's our time. I mean, that speech is gold. <laughs> I'm going to walk with you, Mr. Frodo. That's uh, yeah. If he gives a speech, <laughs> I'm just in. That's the most inspirational guy. OK, I'm way like. That's what this movie does to you. Everything, everywhere, all at once is it just takes you on a million rabbit trails. And it's so true. you're just going to have yeah. to like buckle up with us. This podcast, we're talking a little bit faster. There's going to be a lot of tangents, a little more excited because there's so much to talk about. But the foundational question that I have is, OK, stop, 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 stop. You didn't talk about why we even started talking about 80s movies was your guy. Oh, you're right. Kehi Kwan. Can we go back? <laughs> yes, I'm going to go back we, there. We got to go back so, to Kehi Kwan. So he is Data. That's what his character's name is in mm -hmm. the Goonies. And he's like the inventor kid who does all this stuff. And he was my favorite Goonie. Like, I loved him because he just had like pinches of power and he would do all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and then he was short round. And like, it may be like slightly problematic, I guess. Like, you know, so many 80s movies with uh have problematic elements to it but so it may be that a little bit but i just loved that kid he was so passionate so excited dr jones you know he was there like on the adventure he was short round and i think the reason short round mattered so much to me is because i imagined myself like he was an avatar for me so i was like right that's me in the cart next to indiana jones going through the mind like i am short round and so I like I had such a kinship with him and he just disappeared, vanished like Kaiser Soze from movies for the last 20, 30 years. And then he saw Crazy Rich Asians, was so moved by it that he would like actually called an agent didn't have representation, but like, hey, would you represent me? And then they brought him the script and the rest is history. He gives this all time. Performance no way. In this movie. 
Yeah, I did not know this at all. I thought he'd oh. been maybe kind of like sort of acting for the last 30 years. No, he was like an accountant or a banker or I don't know, just doing whatever child actors do. Like, But he had given up acting. His last role, I think, was like 97 or something like that. And even then, it was like minimal roles. And so, you know, he's with Corey Feldman and Corey Haim and Sean Astin. They're all like taking yeah. off. And he's just like, he's getting smaller and smaller roles. And eventually, he just kind of like folds it in. And thought it was done until he saw Crazy Rich Asians. And that was actually the movie that made him want to jump back into it. That's an amazing story. That makes me even like love this movie even more. <laughs> Doesn't make you root for him, though. And the, the yeah. Daniels were like, we needed a guy who could both be kind of a sympathetic loser, who could do martial arts stuff and then be a debonair billionaire. And dude, he does every single thing, every single one of those things so well. And the images of him as like... The nerdy dad, you're like, oh, that's a grown up short round, right? That's a grown up data, like totally makes sense, of course. But then him is like the debonair billionaire. He's like, he looks so good. Like he, his transformation into all of these roles, it's it, that to me is what blows my mind that he hasn't been acting for the last 30 years because he's going toe to toe with like Michelle Yu, who's like an international superstar. Right. She's a legend, you know, and then James Hong is a legend. Yeah. James Hong, Jamie Lee Curtis. There's so many like great performers, but that dude just like gets in there and his voice kind of sounds the same. It's like really weird because he's like an adult man, like in his middle age now. And he still sounds like short round in some way. So it's like, <laughs> oh, that's weird. But he just there's such empathy and there's such like sadness in his voice that he just pulls it off. I love that story. OK, going back. Where were we? Andrew, how did yes. you feel watching everything everywhere all at once? OK, well, I started to touch on this already, but I feel like the best encapsulation of it is like, have you ever gone to like a big dinner, like a Thanksgiving dinner, like someone else's house? And they're like, oh, you've got to try like my mom's corn pudding. And you're like, corn pudding. That sounds not good. <laughs> but like, yeah. I'm going to be polite and eat it and it'll probably be fine. That's how I went into this movie. And then like. You're sitting there eating the corn pudding and you're like, oh, this is good. And you find yourself like getting seconds and then like you kind of have thirds. And by the end of the night, you like ask for the recipe and you're like, oh, my God, this like this meal changed my life. Right. This is a, that's what this movie was like, is I did not expect to like it. And then I was kind of like, oh, this is pretty good. And then like halfway through it, I'm leaning forward on the edge of my seat. I'm eating this thing up, totally shocked. But also like this movie is wild. And that's an understatement. When you when I say it's wild, like it is the most bananas hard to follow, not hard to follow. It, it, that's the thing. It's not hard to follow, but it's like it's so bananas that like I was loving it while also just like shocked out of my mind. Yeah, it is throwing a lot at you. It's just like boom, 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 go, go, go. I was watching it like thinking like this movie shouldn't work. Th yeah. Like I can't believe it's working as well as it does. You know, the three probably things you want to feel in a movie fundamentally is you want to feel emotion. You want to feel like laughter and comedy. And you want to be thrilled in some way. And this movie like hits all three of those buckets in ways that are so surprising and interesting. And that's what I felt was I was like, this movie, I don't even know if it should work. It's taking all these weird chances that probably shouldn't work. But I am just like so mesmerized. And talk about the meaning of the movie. I literally got out of it and texted you and was like, we've got to see this movie. Like, I agree with what you said earlier, which is like, this is a movie that you have to like process and talk about what it means. I think you didn't want me to have super high expectations going in because you wanted me to watch it clean. So you just like very casually asked me if I'd seen it. You're like, you've seen this? And I was like, no. And you were like, 
okay, cool. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and then like two days later, I texted you with like all exclamation points afterwards. It was like the middle of the night for you. And I think you still responded. <laughs> no. Well, I was, I was like, I'm not answering texts. Rob is sleeping, but I was like, there's only one thing that gets me out of bed. And that's talking about everything everywhere all at once. Oh, man. I mean, but you're, the idea of this movie shouldn't work, and it does. I think there's a couple of reasons. We haven't really even talked about the plot of this movie. So I really hope that you listeners out there have watched this movie, or else you are not following what we're saying at all. Do you uh, want to define the plot? Do you want to give a 30-second plot synopsis of what this movie uh, is? Sure. So oof, let's see how well I do with this. So this movie is about a... Um, Immigrant family who owns a laundromat. Um, it's centered around the wife or the mom character, played by Michelle Yu. And while they are trying to get out of serious tax problems before they get like foreclosed on, she realizes that she's part of a giant multiverse and uh, her husband from a different multiverse comes through the void and tells her that she's part of this grand plan and has to stop a like interdimensional being from destroying the multiverse and that interdimensional being ends up being her daughter. <laughs> That's what it is, but it's kind of not about any of that. <laughs> so, Andrew, you live in L.A., right? <laughs> I do. And you go on sets. You've been on studio lots. Can you imagine walking in to an executive? They're kind of smoking their cigarette like, OK, give me your pitch <laughs> and like pitching that movie that you just pitched me. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like if you give me that pitch, it's like. Nope. Next. You know, even as you're saying it out loud, I'm like, yes, everything he's saying is true. Everything he's saying is what happened. And that's insane that that's the plot of this movie. Right. And then like just from there, like, oh, and by the way, the tax agent is Jamie Lee Curtis, who ends up being an interdimensional assassin, like in a Bourne movie. Right. <laughs> and it's Jamie Lee Curtis as like a out of shape middle aged woman. I read somewhere they were trying to keep this plot like undercover. And so the description was like a small business owner deals with the tax problem. Like that was like the <laughs> log line <laughs> for this movie. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, incredible. technically true. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about whether or not the movie works, right? That, that is. That's what I was talking about. Why does this movie work to you, Andrew? Like, because my thesis was like, this movie shouldn't work. And right. so to you, I ask you that question of like, did this movie work? And if it did, why did it work? So I think there's a couple reasons. I think the directors, these guys, the Daniels, they are hidden gems. They truly understand how to like guide an audience through a story. So like hats off to them, because this would not work without a very steady hand at the wheel. But I think the performances or the, the actors are so dedicated to the movie. They're giving performances that aren't like pulling punches or like winking at you. They're not in on the joke. If there ever is a joke, everything is like fully honest all into this thing. So in this world of absolute insanity, everyone's taking it seriously. And so you end up taking it seriously, too. Yeah, the stakes matter to them. There's such an earnestness. Everyone's earnest. She's like locked in like... This is happening. And so just the way that they're totally immersed in this world, like, lets you be like, OK, I'm here. I'm along for the ride. A lot of the jokes in the movie are absurdities, but they're not necessarily like played that way. No one makes a joke about the everything bagel. It just is. 
right? And right. it's hilarious to the audience. It is, in fact, a joke and makes the whole audience laugh. Like, none of the characters in the movie make a joke about this thing because, in fact, it is really dark and really, like, horrific. Yeah, I mean, it's this really knife's edge walk of performances and directing that just gets you to this really interesting place. All right, let's jump into the categories. For you, Andrew, what's the most meaningful scene? I know what mine is, and I think it's I think it's the bagel scene. But before we get into the bagel, I do want to know what your most meaningful scene is. What do you think? So for me, the most meaningful scene is Evelyn's being <laughs> jerked around. She's trying to figure it all out. Her husband goes regular, and then he goes like crazy sci-fi guy, and then he's regular again. And it's going back and forth. And finally, there's this moment where her daughter arrives, who's Jobu Tupaki, who is the big villain. But then <laughs> she transforms back into Joy, her daughter. And her husband, Wayman, is there. And she has this moment where she has to, like, explain to them, like, what is going on, like, everything that's happening. And mm-hmm. then she just feels like, I can't do this. I can't, like, I can't fight this battle. I can't be the one who does it. And then her husband, who's, like, the agent from the future, actually tells her in that moment, like, no, I have been looking for you for my whole life. I've looked for so many Evelyns across so many universes, and I found you. You're the very worst Evelyn there is. Your life is the most insignificant, the most lame, the most pathetic of all Evelyns out there. Of all the possibilities, your life is the worst. And it's such a like reversal that you're like, oh, wow, that's shocking. And that whole sequence is amazing. And then later in the sequence, actually, uh, James Hong uh, says, you need to kill her. You need to kill her daughter while she's not Jobu Tupaki. And right. <laughs> I really hope you've seen this movie, by the way. I keep thinking that as we talk because I'm like, <laughs> if not, you are lost. If you've seen it, you're like, I'm tracking with you, Rob. I know what you're saying. But anyway, she says, no, you need to kill your daughter. And so she goes over there. She takes the exacto knife out. There's this moment. And when I was watching the movie, it's so crazy. I thought, oh, she might kill her own daughter. And then she goes and like cuts the tape off her daughter and says, no, I will not be there. And actually for the rest of the movie, it becomes about like, I'm going to save my daughter. That's what this movie becomes about for her. That sequence really is interesting because it it like flips the like you are the Messiah figure trope on its head. Neo is the one because he's like the ultimate guy in the Matrix, right? He just doesn't know it yet. Or like all these other kind of like Messiah hero movies, and you know, whether it's a superhero or Superman or whatever these things, you know, like discovering your full potential. It all has to do with the fact that you have some innate amazingness. There's something inside of you that makes you special. Whereas the thing that makes her special is the fact that this version of her life, this dimension of of multiverse is the one in which she has disappointed herself the most. She's basically living her worst life. And because she has, like, no successes, um, she's the cleanest slate to be able to, like, embrace what she needs to embrace to, like, do the mission. So it just, like, on its own is this is kind of, like, wild inversion of that kind of trope that we see a lot of the time. You know, I'm talking about this as the most meaningful scene. Like, I love that idea, Andrew, of, like, that inversion. But I think why it's meaningful is because, honestly, I think about my life sometimes and I think about what if I would have just done this or what if this mm-hmm. book would have sold more or what if this script would have worked or what if, you know, like all these what ifs and I think about how much my life would go better. The truth is there's a lot of what ifs that I could have been paralyzed in a car accident, like horrible things that would have happened, but I don't yeah. spend too much time fantasizing or thinking about that. Instead, I spend this time of like deep regret of like, if I would have just done this, if I'd have just invested in Bitcoin earlier. If I, there are all these things where I can sure. picture an alternate timeline. 
And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm richer. I'm happier. I'm okay. And so I think for a lot of us, we think I'm in my worst timeline. Like, I think that's why that scene is so resonant because like, and I'll just speak for myself, but I've certainly thought that at moments of like, I'm in my worst timeline. I'm the worst version of myself. There's so many other decisions that I could have made where things would have been better. And how did I end up here? And I think that's a yeah. frightening place to be in life sometimes. And that movie, like in the comic way, like still stares that question right in the face. And it was meaningful to me. Yeah. And I think that is ultimately why this movie is so great is because of how it takes these things that are kind of like absurd and crazy. Like you are the hero because you're living your absolute worst timeline. You have failed more than any other version of yourself. Therefore, you're the hero. That's hilarious in its own right. But there's this kernel of truth in it that is like hits you. And I feel like that's what happened in this movie is these like little kernels of reality that like grow through the movie that despite it being wild and ludicrous, like you just are connected to the heart of it because it really is speaking to something really true about the sadness and regret of life, you know? Absolutely. And what makes this movie work so well is like there's that really intense moment. Everything's happening. And then 30 seconds later, she's trying to explain what all's going on. And she talks about <laughs> Raccoon Cooey. And then her daughter's like, don't you mean Ratatouille? And she's like, no, Raccoon Cooey. And like that sets up some of my favorite jokes in the movie. And so it's just this back and forth. That's so good. Let's keep moving, though. I want to hear about the bagel. I want to hear about your oh. most meaningful scene. Let's talk okay. about it. So at this point, I realized the movie was like good and I was on board and excited about it and that it was something special. But when they got to the bagel scene... It was just this like moment of clarity where I felt so personally like connected to what was happening, which is crazy. Like if you've seen this movie and just like, you know, people fighting by slitting the skin between their fingers, like you don't feel like you're going to find like a personal connection with like this movie. This movie is wild. Right. And right. it's largely like a like, story about like an immigrant family. And I'm like, uh, right. you know, that, that's not my story at all. Like this, did, this did not feel like a movie that was going to personally resonate with me. And when it got to the bagel scene, I was like, this is hitting such a specific truth in a way that I couldn't quite qualify for myself before. And this kind of spelled it out for me. That was the idea. The idea of the bagel that we keep talking about is Joy, uh, Evelyn's Evelyn's daughter in this other timeline, the Alpha timeline. She's become this ultimate horrible villain uh, because she her like brain broke as she was dimension hopping and she was able to be in every dimension and see every dimension and every version of herself all at the same time. And so in this, in this one m moment, she says, so she took everything that she could find, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, all her disappointments, poppy seeds, sesame seed, everything, and put it on a bagel, which is one of my favorite lines in the movie. It's great. It's great. I guess like the metaphor is like when you have access to everything, and that's what she's saying here. Once she was able to see every possible option, what she realized or what she then felt was that nothing matters. Yeah. Nothing has meaning when you have access to everything. And that to me was the theme that kind of took over for the rest of the movie that I felt so connected to because I feel like that is the internal struggle that a lot of us in the modern age, especially like young people growing up with technology, like literally under your fingers at every moment of the day, deal with all the time is when you have access to everything, nothing seems to actually matter. And that leads to a really deep sense of meaninglessness and that can lead to a lot of anxiety and depression and that's ultimately what makes the bad guy in this movie the bad guy is that she is wildly depressed because everything in the world seems meaningless and that meaningless is brought on by access to everything um and that was just like such a amazing portrait i think of like 
a lot of our lives within the context of this crazy sci-fi premise. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie about, you know, again, the perfect title, everything, everywhere, all at once. But it's like, okay, what does it live to live in the age of the smartphone? What does it live to live in the age where, like, you can actually see other people's timelines? Like, you can actually see that person that you dated in high school or that person that you went on one Tinder date with or whatever else. Like, all these different people who you're hooking up with. What happened to them? What happened to your best friend? Like, all sorts of different timelines, all sorts of different possibilities. We actually have more information than we've ever had. It's just like flooding into us. Uh, We can research, we can learn things. And it brings this like existential crisis. And I think we've known this for 20 years, but I've never seen a movie that actually like captures that crisis that I think we're all having the way this movie does. So I love that point that you're hitting on. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but uh, Aziz Ansari wrote a book like five or six years ago called uh, Modern Romance, I think it's called. Uh It's about this concept sort of of the access to everything, but directly when it comes to like dating. And he interviewed all kinds of people from like really elderly people who like met their spouses like 70 years ago to like people that are like trying to find love on dating apps. And this idea of like the grand majority of people who got married like in the 40s met and married someone that they lived within like three blocks of. And like now, why would you do that? When you have access to everyone on the planet, you need to look and find the perfect person. And the happiness in relationship amongst the older generation was like markedly higher than anything that we have now when we seem to have all of the tools to find the perfect relationship and the perfect kind of happiness. And so this access to everything is actually not creating that. And this this movie through this sci-fi-ness of it repainted that in a really interesting way to me for me like i did not date in the 1940s uh so so i can't quite relate to that although that totally makes sense but i do know like i rented movies in the 1980s and i know like you would go to a video store and then you would just pick up police academy Four: citizens on patrol and you're like okay police academy Four, like that's my movie and then you would take it home and you'd watch it And like, that's all that I thought about. And now I have Netflix, I have HBO Max, I have Hulu, and I have like countless movies. And there's so many times, bro, where I'm just scrolling through different movies, scrolling through, and I'm like, I start watching something and I'm like, ah, is this good enough? Could I be watching something better? And it's like all these choices actually like rob my joy. They actually make me feel paralyzed. And I always think like, am I watching the best possible thing at this possible moment? And I like not to be this guy, but like I long for the days where I'm like, no, I rented Police Academy from Blockbuster and that's what I'm sticking with. And that's it. That's all there is to it. And so that sort of choice is actually paralyzing. And this might be one of the few like super on the nose things that this movie does, but The daughter character, Evelyn's daughter, her name is Joy. And when she gains access to everything and becomes the bad guy, she changes her name. She becomes Joe Butupaki. And I was like, does that mean like depression and like, you know, Mandarin or something like that? Yeah, I was hoping it was an anagram for something. I actually like spent a little bit of time trying to rearrange the letters to see if it was something. I I didn't see anything in it. Uh, But anyway, like she is robbed of her own identity of joy. She can no longer be joy when she's in this place of just infinite possibilities. And they say it at some point in the movie, which is like, it doesn't matter what you do. When you're in this world of infinite possibilities, something is always going to come along and make you feel worthless and and rob the joy of whatever it is that you just did. Something will always come along and make you feel small. It's true. 
one other thing as you're talking that I think is so powerful, I want to say it now before I forget it, is like circles. Like, have you ever seen a shape matter more in a movie than a circle? Like, (laughs) like the opening shot is on like a circular mirror and then the laundromat, they're showing the circles. And then in the tax room, she's circling something around. Rocks play a big thing. It's just like the bagel is circular. The bagel is a giant circle. They're just circle, circle, circle. But it really is this idea of like the true detective, Matthew McConaughey, life is a flat circle speech. There is an element of that in this whole movie. Oh, good reference. Okay. I've got some random questions about this movie that don't fit cleanly in our categories, but I'm just going to ask them. Perfect. Let's step back from like staring off the existential ledge about is is life meaningless. Step back from that for a second. Okay. So one thing that's not circular is hot dog fingers. And um, (laughs) my big question is this, like, was hot dog fingers necessary when they're cutting to the hot dog fingers timeline? What are you thinking? What are you feeling in those moments? (laughs) Um, Just so uncomfortable. It's there are some really weird things in this movie, like truly bizarre, truly makes you not feel good in your own skin moments. But nothing is worse than hot dog fingers like hot dog fingers is by far the most I want to crawl out of my skin moment, which is so weird. I don't know why it is, but very, very uncomfortable. Every time they cut to hot dog fingers, I was just like. Oh, man, like I could feel my wife like looking at me like you were never allowed to pick the movie again. Like, <laughs> so if you saw this on a recommendation from us somehow and had to deal with hot dog fingers and other disturbing things, I'm sorry. Like, I think it's worth it. But like, I guess for me, I'm like, was it necessary? Who knows who's for me to say? But it did like kind of keep you on edge of like, OK, this is just bananas. Anything is possible. And every time they'd cut to that world, I was just like, what is happening? Where are we? I think they, like, give it meaning. I don't know. It never feels great. But by the end of the movie, there's this uh, quote where when Evelyn is, like, talking to her daughter and, like, trying to, like, pull her back from the edge, basically. And she says, you are not unlovable. There's always something to love. Even in a stupid, stupid universe where we have hot dogs for fingers, you know, we get pretty good with our feet. So, like, was that worth the payoff of probably 10 minutes of hot dog fingers? I don't know. (laughs) I felt no emotional payoff from that whatsoever, although I did laugh so hard (laughs) when she's playing the piano with her feet. (laughs) That's what she's doing. It's like (laughs) it was just bizarre. I just we had to talk about hot dog fingers for a moment. Okay, I have another weird question, which is so at one point she tries to explain like what's happening and then like to her husband and she's like, no, it's kind of like Ratatouille. Only she doesn't say Ratatouille. She talks about Raccoon Cooey. And this is before we know there's a Raccoon Cooey universe. Did this timeline exist because she messed up explaining Ratatouille or did it already exist and she knew about the Raccoon Cooey timeline in this moment? So at this point, she hasn't hit the point where she like breaks and can be everywhere all at the same time. Yeah, this is before that happens. Right. So I don't think she's seen it. So the question is, Did it exist already or did she like manifest it? Like, did she create it? Yes. I think it's a little bit of both. The like rules of the multiverse in this movie is that like everything is possible. Like every version of your life is a reality somewhere. It's just further and further and further and further removed from like the most probable. Um, And so Raccoon Cooey was always there. Is it Raccoon Cooey or Raccoonie? It's one of the two. <laughs> I think maybe you're right, Rakakuni. 
it, <laughs> maybe I'm saying it wrong. It's so confusing, but but yeah. Regardless, I, I think it was always there, and because she made the mistake, then it allowed her brain to like find it when she was jumping timelines. Like she found the coordinates. The moment when I realized they're gonna really pay this off, and the raccoons on his head, like actually doing ratatouille, and then he turns around, and the raccoons like. She's seen too much. I laughed so hard. <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I was like, this is this is a plus, man. And the fact that the like the raccoon is like a bad 1970s, like Disneyland animatronic. Yes. <laughs> like, like, like it's, it's it's not some like great 2002 CGI raccoon. It's like a really like motorized mouth almost like from Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, no, it's it's a disaster. But the other moment that I just loved is when the Benny Hanna guy's there and he's like doing all the cool stuff. And then she gets really mad at him and just pulls off his hat and the raccoon's there. And the whole audience <laughs> like goes like, oh, you know, like that was just incredible comedy gold. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's my favorite timeline just for pure joy. Yeah, I've, I could watch a whole Raccoon Cooey movie. Um, okay, here's another question. How many timelines are represented in this movie? Give me a number. How many timelines are represented like or alternate universes? So my second watch through this, I was trying to count and I full on lost count. But while going through my brain afterwards... I think there is, I want to say like 14 timelines. That's my guess, but there's probably more. It's what was so breathtaking to me is that they actually like pushed the story forward and all those timelines. It's not like you cut to one timeline and it's like, okay, we did the raccoon cooey joke. It's over. It's like, we're going to stick with this timeline and we're going to keep, we're going to keep cutting back to hot dog fingers. Like you may be done with hot dog fingers, but hot dog (laughs) fingers is not done with you. You know, like that's what this movie is doing. If there is a timeline that's not done with you, it's hot dog fingers. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so I actually wrote down a list of, um, okay. uh, tried to count them, so here's what I have. Cool, 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 cool. So timeline number one, her timeline, so the actual Evelyn's doing taxes. Timeline number two is, like, a slightly different timeline in a van where she's, like, with her husband, like, and they're talking about, like, uh, that's where they first talk about the divorce. Timeline number three, hot dog fingers. Timeline number four is rocks, where all of a sudden they're in, like, this existential rock universe may talk more about that later uh timeline number five is the timeline with the party where like she's not in the office anymore actually the party like goes on at the laundromat uh number six is raccoon cooey number seven is there's like a matrix timeline which what i mean by that is like there's like a place where he's in this Winnebago. Did you notice that? Like when they're cutting back, yeah. kind of like the spaceship of the Matrix, only this is not a spaceship. It's like the Winnebago from Breaking Bad and like all these different people are in there like working and they have like red and blue lights on their head, like trying to figure it all out. That moment is exactly if Breaking Bad and, and the Matrix had a weird brainchild baby. Like if Jesse just appeared and was like, Heisenberg, what's up? Like, I would just believe it. I'd be like, okay, whatever. <laughs> then there's also uh, the opera timeline, and that's different than the martial arts movie star timeline. So in one of them, opera may not be the right word, but it's very like this kind of classical theater where she's dressed up and her dad's there and she's singing beautifully. But then in another timeline, which is a more significant one, she actually becomes this amazing martial artist turn movie star. So she's like a Jackie Chan or Chuck Norris in that world. Is that it? That's like nine that I ca- I'm not confident in that list, but like off the top of my head, like when I was writing down notes, those were the nine that I counted. So I think that's right. I think those are the the ones that are like full timelines that actually progress in multiple scenes. 
Um, the so like going through the movie, there's like the main one that starts, like you said, and then there's like the alpha timeline where like Alpha Wayman comes from, right? Which is like the yep. Matrix van, right? Yep. Um, and then the, there's the closet timeline. It's the first time that he like pulls her over and splits her. They go to this other like mirror dimension almost. Where oh yeah. They're they're in the broom closet. And like his avatar in that world, like dies, like Jamie Lee Curtis hits him with a pipe. Then crazy Jamie Lee Curtis comes from that timeline into the like main one. That's right. I forgot she died in that timeline, which is part of what made me think she was going to kill her own daughter. Because it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what you do in this world. So she's going to kill her own daughter in that moment. Um, Right. Um, And then the main timeline splits off from the timeline where she goes home to like do her taxes and and they talk about divorce. And I think that timeline splits twice because I think there's two versions of the party at the end. Oh, you're right. You're right. Because one, she's sitting outside talking with her. And then another one, she's like talking to her daughter by the car. But it's very similar. Right. They're very similar. I think maybe in one she like freaks out and breaks the windows and in one she doesn't. It was a little bit hard for me to tell. I was trying to figure out, but I was like, I think these are two versions of the same night, basically. And there's a, a few others that felt like maybe they were just like single scenes or single like places almost. Oh, pinata. Did we talk about that? Pinata is a timeline. There's the pinata timeline. There's the like S&M timeline of like the secret room behind the door. Oh, yeah. And then there's like Bagel World, which might be its own timeline where they're all in like white. And like, I don't know if that's just like a place out of time or it's if it's its own timeline. Yeah, because there's also like this Kill Bill forest that they're walking around in a couple of times and where the swords turning into different stuff. And I couldn't figure out like what that timeline was or if that was a timeline. That's either a timeline. My other thought was maybe that was like the set of one of her movies from the Kung Fu timeline. And they were just popping in and out of those moments of her as like an action star. Well, regardless, I think what's so amazing about this movie is there's <laughs> at least eight timelines with a full story told, like a beginning, middle, and end story where they set up a problem, right. they deal with conflict, and then they have an emotional cathartic play- payoff in all these different times. And I'm like, we just marveled at Spider-Man No Way Home and they kind of did it like three times-ish, like two times. <laughs> this doesn't like eight to ten times with characters we've never seen, never heard of in a way that like, again, shouldn't work. But as it's like as the it's progressing, it's like all speaking to each other and paying off in a way that's breathtaking. I didn't really think of this until right now. But like one of the things about like telling a story when you have like B plots, right? Like you have like your your main plot, your A plot. But if you have like B plots and C plots and like your uh, supporting cast and they have their own like little little plot lines, is the rule is, is those plot lines should always inform the protagonist and inform the main plot line. Right. So the, the, they right. should they should be going through something similar that is either like a contrast to or a cautionary tale or a better version of or something that teaches the main like it should all be related to the main plot line. And in thinking about these like other timelines, it's interesting. They almost function as like B plots. It, it would it would be like a subplot in a movie with other characters but it's all the same three characters Four if you include grandpa, right? Five, if you include Jamie Lee Curtis, right? right? But like, it's, it's the same, basically five characters doing all of their own subplots. Um, that's really interesting. I think to, that's true to flesh out a movie, you know, that are all kind of like advancing the story, but also like a thing you cut away to, but they all right. again, add to the theme in their own way. Right. So let me ask you this while we're on timelines, like, What's the most meaningful timeline to you? Did you have one that really jumped out to you? Like, oh, this one resonated with me? 
Oh, that's a great question. I feel like the one that stops you in your tracks the most and you go like, whoa, um, is the rock timeline for yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that that's the one that stops the movie in its in its tracks. I mean, is that is that what you felt? Literally stops it in its tracks where it's like, <laughs> well, maybe not literally. It's not a train, but like literally like it's just like cut, 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 cut. And then all of a sudden we are on a cliff with two rocks just like staring into the abyss there's no, it's literally like a stop motion. It's just cutting back and forth to two rocks with like subtitles that look like there's something from that I would make on Adobe Premiere. And like, that's it. That's, that's what the scene is for like five minutes. And like that got some of the biggest laughs in the theater. And it got some really like emotional moments when they're like looking off in the abyss and they're like, it's peaceful out here, isn't it? And you feel their pain of like, maybe I'd be better if I was just a rock and didn't have anything to worry about. There is this like, existential pain in that moment right what was it they say that like this is a timeline in which like life never happened so it's not just that they're rocks it's that they have no choice but to be a rock right like rocks are all there is and that there is a peace in not having to deal with the regret and the disappointment and the never being good enough and like when there is no choices to be made then you can feel at peace they're sitting there, and uh, Jibu says, every new discovery is just a reminder, and Evelyn says, that we're just all small and stupid. And the, again, that was one of the moments that just, like, hit me. And it reminded me, have you, have you ever gone, like, way out in, like, the wilderness, like, the mountains or out in a desert or something, and, like, in the middle of the night and just, like, stared up at the stars? It's probably, like, the most cliche thing to do to, like, feel really small. Yeah. Oh, I've done it. Yeah. That's what this felt like to me, but in, like, a whole different, weird other timeline kind of way of like the vastness of just being two rocks in this vast world of rocks, you know? Yeah, it's like that's almost like a trope where it's like, oh, we're staring at the sky and whatever else. But this is just like, oh, you're a rock and there's nothing else. And it is just the the science and abstract. And I think it's important to say that Evelyn does fall into the darkness. Like she at one point, she's like her eyes literally go black and she's like, you know what? My daughter kind of has a point like there's nothing here. And I mean, it feels like her daughter's on the brink of suicide and she's on the brink of suicide. And I'm thinking that right. in the middle of the movie of like, wow, we're dealing with suicidal ideation in this movie with hot dog fingers. And like, how do we right. like deal with those two things side by side? And that's what makes it powerful. It's the closest that you get to the conversation of suicide outside of Joy wanting to walk into the bagel at the end. Um, that's like sort of the outright suicide. But this idea of it's better to have no options, to be nothing to have no regret, no ambition, nothing. To be completely blank is better than to have all this disappointment and meaninglessness. And that is like the closest thing to basically you're erasing yourself. It's pretty much suicide. Okay, so I have one other timeline that I want to talk about, but I'm going to save that for my final thesis oh. statement. And so stay tuned for that. We'll get back to that. Uh, I want to keep moving to who's your most meaningful character in this movie, Andrew? I think we've spent a lot of time talking about Jobu, and I think that's because she was my most meaningful character. Like I said, when we got to the bagel scene, I was just like, I connect with this character so much of the feeling of what it feels like to be stuck in the middle of all of this. Um, But I think that Evelyn and Wayman's characterization in their story bring something totally unique and different to this story. Um, that I'm curious who, who yours was. Okay. So my most meaningful character, well, first of all, like I said at the beginning, Waymond, anytime he like said a line, did anything like I connected with him the most, 
But the storyline that I found the most meaning in was Evelyn. And particularly, like, I think this is worth talking about for a moment, is this movie is a Rorschach test. This movie is like one of those ink blots that you can hold up to all these sorts of different people. And everyone finds different meaning. Everyone, like, you and I are, like, looking at the same scenes, looking at the same characters, and finding different movies. and for sure. Or, or meanings of the movie, you know? And so I felt that. But here's my big thing, dude, is Evelyn as a parent is what I really resonated with the most. Because oh, no, let me okay. tell you this, Evelyn as a parent, uh, every parent deals with a couple of fears. And I actually wrote down, there's a progression of fears that parents deal with. And this is fears of like what your kid's going to do. This is not them being kidnapped or whatever else like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. of their own action, there are three fears that I have. Fear number one is your fear that your kid's making a bad choice. And, you know, early on, it's like, okay, Joy's got a girlfriend, she's embarrassed by it, and she's dealing with that sort of thing. And so every parent has that fear of like, honey, you're doing something, like whatever it is, you're going to the wrong college, you're doing the wrong thing, you're, you quit a job when you should have it, you're failing out of school, like you're making a choice that's bad. And so that's yeah. the first fear that every parent has not to deal with. And then the next level of fear that gets a little bit darker is, what if my kid's a bad person? And she kind of has that mo like there's this moment where Joy comes or Jobu Tupaku comes and she's just killed two people with the most graphic uh, instruments of death maybe ever on a movie, like the most shocking <laughs> yeah. image of the movie. I'm not going to describe it in detail, but uh, the whole theater kind of <laughs> laughed and gasped and it is like shocking. It is. Um, it is very shocking. <laughs> you know, and in that moment, what I actually thought is like, what's the most monstrous, scary weapons that a mom could see her daughter have and she's holding them right there in her hand. And like, I think in that moment, fear number two is my daughter is a bad person. Like she's actually evil. I think about the movie, like we need to talk about Kevin or something else like that. And I think parents do have a fear where it's like, what if something's wrong with my kid? What if they're broken? What if they're bad? What if that badness came from me? And so sure. I think that's the next fear, um, which is complicated. But then even worse than that is fear number three, which is a fear of like, my kid has lost all hope. My kid feels completely hopeless. They feel there's no reason to live anymore. And eventually, like, the ultimate nightmare for a parent is suicide. You know, it's the worst. Yeah. I mean, just saying that out loud is just the most horrific right. thing I can think of, bro. And um, this movie really progresses through those three fears and Evelyn's connection to those. And we're ultimately like what this movie comes is like not defeating her daughter, but actually saving her daughter from hopelessness is what this movie's all about. Absolutely. And it's, it's so interesting to say that's what this movie is all about because that's how like the movie climaxes and like resolves. So I think it's the core of it is this idea of Evelyn as a parent saving her daughter from hopelessness. Yeah. Another buddy of mine watched this movie and he basically saw this whole movie as like a midlife crisis movie of did I make the wrong decisions? I'm not accomplished enough. Am I happy in my life with the decisions that I've made and looking at all the other different versions of, of me and could I have had a better life if I made different decisions? But this movie is also totally about and that is also super core to Evelyn's, Evelyn's character. So she has this whole like parenting journey that you just described and, and resonated with while at the same time having this whole midlife crisis of did I live my life correctly journey intertwined and parallel to that at the same time. And they're both 
full character arcs within the same person. And that doesn't even get over to the husband and all of his stuff. Like there is so much happening at the same time in this movie. You know, a friend of mine texted me and said, uh, Rob, how are you going to cover all the themes in this movie? And I was like, I don't know. And even right now, I'm like, as you're saying the midlife crisis thing and that's out there, I'm like, that's totally true. And I'm like, I bet there's like six to 10 other themes that someone's listening to this podcast right now and they're shouting at us like, how are you not talking about this? And I'm like, I don't know, man. It's everything everywhere all at once. It's too much to talk about. There's too much meaning. And I'm just dealing with it all. So, Andrew... My brain is broken now, going all these different rabbit trails, but oh, I want to land the plane broken. here and just ask you this, like, what's, what's the meaning of the movie? Like, what's your final argument? If you're given the pitch of, like, this is what this movie's trying to say, what is that thing? I think the, the cross-section of all three stories, and we didn't really talk much about Wayman and his story about kindness and optimism and choosing innocence and naivete— But the intersection of all three of these characters, I feel like, is probably the closest to the center of the meaning, which is that, like, our modern society today is so overpacked with access to anything that something will always come along and make you feel small and make you feel worthless. And you can choose to feel worthless, right? You can accept that washing over you because it's coming at you constantly. Or you can actively choose optimism and kindness and you have to ignore the fact that you know maybe everything you're doing in the grand scheme of the universe is in fact meaningless that your life doesn't have meaning in the grand scheme of the universe but that it has meaning to the people near you and that is like enough and that seems like a theme that i've seen in other other movies of like oh you matter to your loved ones but this is almost a step beyond that and like you have to actively choose that You have to make the choice to be naive enough, to be optimistic enough, to see past the meaninglessness of most of your actions, (laughs) which is like really sad, but also like hope for those of us who do experience that a lot. Yeah, this movie is dealt with themes that we've dealt with in movies for the last hundred years, right? But it's doing it in a fresh way that feels unique and insightful as well as universal. How about you? Like, I, I feel like I was trying to sum up everything in like this like small little Coke bottle answer. But like, if you could like pitch why this movie is so special, how would you sell it? I have something to say about this. Oh, do you? Yeah, I have some strong feelings. And this movie fundamentally to me is about losing faith. It's about okay. realizing everything is a lie. Everything is meaningless. And then having to reconstruct faith. And by faith, I don't necessarily mean faith in God, although maybe that's part of it. But what I actually mean is your faith in your marriage, your faith that you're doing a good job with your kids, your faith that one day your business is going to take off, your faith that, like, you see all these areas where Evelyn mm-hmm. used to have faith and hope, and eventually it fell apart. And in fact, the very first real stake in the movie is when she sees Waymond with the divorce papers, and she realizes, like, oh my goodness. I'm about to lose this thing that's so important to me. And she realizes like, okay, finding meaning in life, the first step is being thankful for the people nearest to you and just not taking them granted. And if something's broken, making it right. She has to learn to make things right with her husband and she has to learn to make things right with her daughter. And I said there was one other timeline that's the most meaningful to me. And that timeline is where she is a beautiful movie star and her husband is a billionaire and they could be around all these famous people, but they're just standing outside in an alley 
and he realizes like she's gonna break up with me again and he has this line i wrote it down and he says so even though you have broken my heart yet again i wanted to say in another life i would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you and that's is so powerful and in the very beginning of this movie Evelyn and Wayman walk into the lobby and they see this older Chinese couple actually kissing and it's just this romantic moment and it cuts to Wayman just for a split second and you see in his eyes the sadness and devastation like I'll never have this and then Mm. at the very end of the movie almost two hours later cuts back to that same lobby and Evelyn leans in and kisses her husband and I'm telling you, it's like the sexiest, most romantic, powerful, meaningful kiss I may have ever seen in a movie where it's like that's the kiss of people who have been in love for 20 or 30 years. It's a kiss of like true, deep love and a meaningful marriage that it captures. And that is what's so powerful to me about this movie. Yeah. And you're right about that moment. Like it is so passionate and so like intimate. And it's it's not because it's super sexually charged, going to make the mtv best kiss list though it should she like cups his face and it's like i love you you mean so much to me i i I see you know it's it's literally like frank capra it's a wonderful life it's like oh my gosh i've been like living here and i didn't notice this beautiful man that i had right in front of me and it just again it should be cheesy it should be cliche but it's poignant and it's meaningful and it's why we go to movies to watch stuff like this I think a lot of great Hollywood kisses are like the I want you kiss. And this was like, I adore you kiss. That's right. That's what it was. Just gives you all all of the feelings. Well, I hope we gave you all the feelings in this episode. I had a lot of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for buckling up. Thanks for going on this journey with us. Andrew, good job today, man. Thank you so much. I mean, this this is a movie that like it's so wild how nihilistic this movie is and then comes out giving you hope while without negating the fact that it like lands on this version of the world that has very little meaning it gives you hope in that and that's like just so crazy like it's such a you gotta go see this movie guys and like find someone to talk to about it should we start at the beginning and just start over and talk about this movie all over again because that's i think we could (laughs) i think we could and hit none of the same points because there's a whole other podcast of other things to talk about in this movie but that's all the time we got folks i hope this isn't the worst version of the podcast i hope this is not the worst (laughs) timeline where we just botched this podcast if it is i'm sorry we'll do better next time But hey, everyone, thanks for listening. We had fun today. We appreciate you being a part on the journey. We'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.